Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am here in New York City for the O'Reilly AI Conference, uh, and I'm with Joanna Bryson. Joanna is a reader at the University of Bath. Apparently, a reader is something like a super associate professor. That's right. Um, And Joanna's here to speak on maintaining human control of artificial intelligence. We've been uh, interacting on Twitter for quite some time, and it is a pleasure to finally meet you in person. I am so bad with these things. I totally forgot you were that guy on Twitter, too. That is awesome. Yeah, I'm super happy to be here. <laughs> we said super twice in the same 10 minutes. I hope that's okay. Probably it is not a problem. It, it is not a problem at all. Not a problem at all. Before we got started, we shared quite a bit about Chicago. We both spent about 10 years or so in Chicago. Yeah, and we uh, went to the competing universities there, right? That's we right. Northwestern for me for And University school. of Chicago for me as an undergraduate. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, so starting from your undergrad in Chicago, how did you make your way to working in AI? Oh, yeah. Well, that is absolutely critical to understand who I am, that I did do that undergraduate degree, the liberal arts degree at Chicago. So my first degree was basically behavioral sciences, which at that time meant non-clinical psychology. They've uh, annoyingly rebranded. So now it means a business degree. I did not do a business degree. Anyway, so I actually am interested in the fundamentally what makes, you know, what is intelligence? How does it work? Um, Why do some species use it more than others? Why do some people use it more than others? Why do individuals use it more at some times than other times? I mean, I am really interested in the blue sky basic nuts and bolts of intelligence. And I got my start at Chicago with a liberal arts degree. And so then when um, I worked for five years in industry, and I went and did a master's degree at Edinburgh, which was at that time one of the very few places that you could do just a degree in artificial intelligence. In fact, their AI department was older than their computer science department there. So it was no more computer science than it was linguistics or philosophy or music. They actually had a big music component and, of course, psychology and neuroscience. So that was a really great opportunity, too, to really get at what intelligence was. And and uh, I think Europe is still more inclined to be focused on that, although there are some great uh, programs in America like uh, Indiana and uh, Colorado where uh, AI sort of falls under psychology and not under uh, computer science. Anyway, uh, I, uh, I, I, I already knew that I kind of wanted to go to MIT because that was, you know, the best thing, <laughs> I thought. So I, uh, I, I managed to get, uh, I worked hard, I managed to get the letters of reference I needed more than the grades and got into MIT uh, for my PhD, which uh, was super interesting and opened a lot of doors, but was also uh, some kind of a nightmare in many ways. And especially for someone coming in with a psych degree into the computer science department. I um, imagine. But I did learn uh, some really, again, some really important things about computer science. Like, for example, that there's something that is computational tractability. There, there are limits to what we can know, and, and they're physical limits. They take time, space, and energy to do computation. So then also while I was at MIT, I noticed that people uh, projected, they, they over-identified with AI, and they had really weird beliefs about it, but only in some contexts. Only if it was like, for example, I was working on a robot shaped like a human. Right? There were other robots everywhere that were actually better. This robot, it turned out, wasn't grounded properly. <laughs> so it's As an electrically grounded? To figure out that it wasn't grounded. Uh, now we couldn't figure out why the, the, the different process. It was supposed to be like a parallel brain, and we couldn't figure out why the different processors didn't talk to each other. So anyway, 
the person that figured that out was the one that they uh, they hired when they fired me. <laughs> so they at some point they cut all the the sort of liberal arts people off the project because they they weren't getting the funding they were hoping for. And so anyway, but while I was on that, as I said, I noticed people. Well, I couldn't help but notice they would interrupt me. I was sitting there, and they'd be saying, "Hey, it'd be unethical to unplug that robot," and I'd be like, "Um, well, it's not plugged in." So that was how I got into AI ethics. I wrote my first paper with a philosopher friend I had named Phil Kime. And uh, so that was that was the way I got my first AI ethics paper, and then um, and then I was already a mature student because, as we also discussed, I, I worked in Chicago in the financial industry for a few years and paid off my undergraduate debts. So um, I didn't get uh, many uh, uh, calls when I when I was looking to work uh, as a professor in America. So I applied to like two places in the UK and I got offered five interviews. So I was like, oh, okay, I guess these guys are still into this stuff. So I went back there. And again, the British, like, it's not the tenure system. So you, uh, I could do whatever I wanted. They have a really high, or they did at the time, have a very high toleration of eccentricity. And so I was able to pursue the blue sky stuff I, I was interested in as long as I, you know, I was really good at teaching programming and, you know, and I got the occasional AI paper out. So then in, um, Things kind of chugged along, and and then in 2007, um, the last time we had a, a president we were terrified of, uh, George Bush was uh, talking. His administration gave like tens of millions to Ron Arkin to make ethical uh, AI robots warriors. Now I thought I didn't know that Ron Arkin had been trying to get that money for ages. I thought that this was Bush trying to do like Abu Ghraib with robots because, as I said, mm-hmm. people over-identify with them. So I started cranking up the publishing uh, in the AI ethics area. And so then I started getting like called to the table, um, you know, by, by governments. The EU is really good at this stuff. The British are very good at it. And um, they would be asking questions that like nobody knew the answers to, like how is AI changing society? But because of the other work I'd been doing, all that stuff about like how, do, how you know, what is, what is intelligence for and how, you know, how does it change a species and what, what, what do you use it for? I was able to more answer those questions than a lot of other people. So I've wound up uh, doing a huge amount of um, sort of consultations into really interesting, <laughs> obviously, companies, but also um, more more NGOs like uh, OECD and the Red Cross, um, Chatham House, you know, people that I, I was, I didn't think I would have anything to offer. But, but what's cool is they bring in like they, these roundtables, and then I would be one of the two or three AI experts, and then I'd learn about the other stuff. So right now, what I think is actually the most important stuff I'm working on um, in terms of research is that I've started working on political economy, trying to understand things like why polarization is correlated with um, wealth, uh, wealth inequality, not wealth. I mean, wealth is fine, right? But 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 when you get um, when when society gets uh, too when when the amount of income is too different, and we don't think it's probably the income that really is doing it. We think it's like how comfortable you feel. Um, then then that tends, although that always to lead to um, uh, high political polarization. So that again goes back to the original stuff I was interested in. Um, about how do we cooperate? Why do we have these conversations? Why am I here? You're not paying me, right? But I think it's a worthwhile thing to do. Is if somebody wants my opinion, I think it's the obligation of academics. I mean, that's basically what we are. We're getting paid by taxpayer money to be receptacles of information and also to do some research, which people tend to focus on more. But really, we were the ones who were good at answering questions. So then when people ask questions, we should answer. That was a long answer. <laughs> Sorry, I like that. Do you want, no, is no. that okay? That is, that's totally fine. That's totally fine. So one of the things that 
you, you touched on, and it's a big focus of your uh, your research is understanding natural intelligence. Yeah, yeah. And do you think of that as a prerequisite to understanding artificial intelligence or talking about artificial intelligence? Well, no, I mean, uh, <laughs> obviously not, because there's a lot of people who are leaders in AI that know nothing about natural <laughs> intelligence or government, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> so, I mean, one of the other things uh, about Chicago is that uh, politics is like a sport there. It's like, I, I watched the Cubs and I, you know, <laughs> and, I, and I read about politics and, you know, it was... Um, a lot of people just show uh, a striking amount of ignorance about that, but there are great, great people in AI that are making real contributions to society. But it, we need now at this point to realize that once you get to the point where you're really altering, um, even if you aren't making that much money like Twitter, but certainly if you're making a lot of money and also you're altering the landscape of what it is to be human, you've got to talk with people. You've got to go in and participate with government. I mean, really participate, not just try to block them from doing things to you. I mean, actually think about the problems you're causing in society. You know, the, the great power equals great responsibility thing. You know, we, we need to get those guys talking. So, no. <laughs> no, unfortunately, it, it is not at all true that you have to understand this stuff. How can we best use our understanding of natural intelligence? Well, or I, even taking a step back, what do we understand about natural intelligence and how can we apply that to AI? Is that even a narrow enough question to start to answer? I mean, I think what academics are is we, we look at things in nature that, or, or the world or anything that, that we can't understand. And then we try to say, especially if we feel like we ought to be able to understand that. I almost understand it, but I don't quite. So one of the big questions that motivated me a lot as a PhD student was why are the different regions of the brain, why, why do they have different architectures? Right, because why wouldn't nature just find one best architecture? Right, because it's had billions of years to do that. Right, why wouldn't it do that? <laughs> and again, this was like I wasn't taking to heart that part about computation I told you about before. Now I understand, and that was something, and it was interesting because I mean, I literally like really smart people, like you know, Sandy Pentland, some of these people. When I was finishing my PhD, they were the ones who helped me see what I'd found, which was that uh, this explained why the modular approaches to AI were working well. Right, it's that that. Basically, you have a lot of learning problems to solve, and learning, again, is, it, it's about tractability, and it's about um, making it likely that you'll learn in time, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. So you can prove sometimes, for example, we don't need, in some, in some deeply theoretical sense, we don't need deep learning. We don't need multiple layers to neurons. In theory, uh, like, you know, a single, a single hidden layer is sufficient to solve any problem. But in practice, it's incredibly unlikely that you're going to get there with that with that single uh, middle layer. And when you when you add lots of other layers, you're you're adding um, information in that can accelerate the learning. Well, of course, if you're accelerating some kinds of learning, you're decelerating other kinds. And that's the whole point: is that you want to make something that's likely to learn the problem you're studying. It. And so basically, the different parts of the brain are, are sitting there solving different kinds of problems, like the problems that eyes have and the problems that ears have and the problems of planning and, and of uh, choosing of all the options before you and of meeting the goals you have. I mean, these are just different kinds of problems. And so they have different architectures that are best able to facilitate you learning how and also, of course, controlling doing that. So yeah, that, that, I mean, I, I remember I was just laughing when... Um, you know, the, the DeepMind got sold for 400 million pounds. And then they're going, oh, we're, we're providing artificial general intelligence. It's like, there's never going to be an algorithm that gives you omniscience. You know, there's never going to be a single solution. And you guys, there's like 14 of them. The reason they were getting 400 million pounds was they were really good at tweaking the parameters. And, no, and 
and, and so nobody else was as good as they were at it. They, that was like, if there was AGI, they wouldn't have been worth anything, right? <laughs> they were worth a lot of money because they had specialist uh, capacities, some of which were intuitive, but some of which were obviously that they're smart people and they, they were onto good strategies. Well, maybe let's transition a little bit to the talk that you'll be giving tomorrow on the topic of maintaining human control of artificial intelligence. I think, you know, I think of that as a a headline or a topic. In a lot of ways, it's obvious that we need to maintain control of artificial intelligence. But when you think about that, like, what does that mean to you? And why is that important? Well, it's really interesting. There's two, there's two big differences. One is that uh, some people really, really, really want to replace themselves. Like it's it's part of their own drive for for immortality is to have these uh like the whole these AI offspring. Thing. Yeah. Like so there's a surprising number of people are still talking about they, they think like AI is these aliens we've discovered and we need to make friends with them, you know. And I wish we would make friends with other people. If, you know, like <laughs> the, the, the amount of, of devotion to that idea, I mean strong emotional um and also some, I mean, some of them are very well-informed philosophers and things like that. You know, this is immoral necessity. And just like, no, it's like, it, so I tried for a long time to, com- to communicate that, look, look, we designed something. So if we built something that required our obligation, we would be being mean to it. But I think I, in a way, gave the whole idea more credit than it deserved. And I should have focused more on the fact that she, I was just doing this logical thing and saying, look, you know, we shouldn't do that for logical reasons. But actually, pragmatically, we're never going to build something that experiences the world as much like us as a fruit fly does. And people kill fruit flies left, right, and center. You know, the, the, just the, the, the phenomenological experience is, is dependent on um, all these sorts of the sensors we have, the subset of all the computation we can do that, that we've evolved into, the, the, the space that we're in. So, but that's not the most important part. And I think I've, I've just spent too much time on it probably again. <laughs> but but that, I mean, even that makes me makes me wonder – Granted, we can't create something that has the same sensory experience uh, yeah. as we do because it won't have the same sensors. But yeah. does that also imply that you don't think that we can create something that has a degree of self-awareness? Oh, yeah. See, that's again. There's a lot. Am of I words. falling into some trap that everyone yeah, yeah, yeah. falls into? <laughs> no, exactly. Everybody like so. There, there's so many terms that that uh, that we we use to mean human. Right. Mm. Actually, the best one, I think the one you're really interested in is moral agent and moral patient. That's two terms, sorry. Mm-hmm. Moral agent is something that if it does something, it's responsible. Our society considers it responsible. And that varies by society. There, you know, no, there, isn't a, there isn't universal agreement about how old you have to be before you're an adult. Right. I mean, in some mm-hmm. cultures, you're an adult when your dad dies. And obviously, you're only an adult if you're male. Um, right? mm. So, mm-hmm. so this is, uh, on the other hand, the, um, the uh, moral patient is the thing you have to take care of. It's something that that the society realizes it has it has obligations towards, and so that can include things like the environment, you know, things that don't or babies, right? Things that are not moral agents themselves, but but that we we think we realize we need to take care of. Although a lot of philosophers think the reason we have to take care of those things is because it's in our own interest. So that basically only moral agents have have the 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 foundation of moral patiency. But that as we realize the the sort of interconnected world we live in, then we extend our needs through these other organisms that that we have identity with. And incidentally, that's the best explanation for why we would ever take care of AI is that if we don't take care of things that we feel empathy for, then we might then we we harden our hearts <laughs> and we and we learn to uh, treat things we do 
we should empathize with like other people badly. So that's like mm. um, what the British have come up as with a response to that is say, okay, so don't make AI that reminds you of people. <laughs> you know, there, there's two sides <laughs> of that, right? Right. So yes, of course we have. Uh, I would say we, you know, if if you think that consciousness is um, self self awareness then AI and robots have more of that than we do, right? They have RAM. You know, any computer science system has a RAM. It can know exactly what all the parameters are, right? Part of what it is to be human is not to have access to all that stuff, actually, because a lot of it will slow you down and clutter, clutter your, your, your way forward. So we, learning for us is about consolidating all that knowledge into the stuff that's actually going to be most likely to be useful in the future. Mm-hmm. So that's not, it's not quite the same thing. But anyway, let me skip on to the thing that's actually really important, which is, I, I tend to talk about AI as uh, necessarily extending from humans, like the A is artifact. So it's something you've made for some purpose. And so uh, the other side of maintaining human control is actually basically not making something that's going to be a big dumpster fire. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and, and I was really expecting a technical <laughs> term there. <laughs> so so I, I, it almost got it almost went south from that, but I, I was I was good at the last minute. <laughs> um, but anyway, so the 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 I am particularly concerned about organizations that deliberately try to evade responsibility for what they do. So like when a government comes in and decides that they want to cut taxes for some of their friends, and that the way they'll do that is by stopping services for people that that they that didn't vote for them. Uh, and then they they hide that within like some complicated software that they sort of outsource and try to and obfuscate, right? So there's been cases of this. Um, and if you don't have proper rules about accountability, well, if you have proper accountability, and now just to cut to the the boring chase of this, all you need is decent DevOps, right? You just need to be able to go in and see, you know, what was the rationale to writing the software, right? And and so you can see. Um, what was intended if people have documented and logged that properly, right? Or you can even guess it. I mean, they may not say, you know, we want to, uh, you know, do bad things to the people on the wrong side of the town. <laughs> but, but but you can still see, like, you know, save money in this in this neighborhood or something, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the um, but for quite a lot of what's happened is that people aren't doing the kind of standard, standard stuff you do in software engineering in AI, again, because of this over-identification. Maybe because too many you know, psychologists or whatever are, are dropping in and haven't had their computer science courses. Mm-hmm. But maybe, um, maybe because people just think, oh, you don't have to do that with AI. It's going to teach itself. Like it's the, the machine is supposed to be responsible for itself. And we can't do that. We cannot hold machines responsible. There's no way, you know, the penalties of law that we've invented dissuade humans. In fact, they would dissuade sheep if the sheep could understand, right? So a lot of it is based on you don't want to lose social status. You don't want to lose, you know, freedom. You don't want to lose time, right? That, you know, you're not going to build AI that, that is sincerely going to care about those kinds of things in the, in the pervasive way that we do. You know, it, it's just systemic for us. We, when you isolate someone, it is a form of torture. I mean, for any length of time, right? So that, and yeah, you're not going to make AI that, I mean, if you could, that would be unethical, but you're not going to make AI that, 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 not AI that you can maintain safely, right? Again, this is me being, uh, um, probably overly generous. I don't think there's any way you can do whole brain uploading, but if you could, <laughs> then that would be more like a clone, and then that would, mm-hmm. and then all the stuff I'm saying wouldn't apply to that. But you wouldn't be able to maintain and extend it like you can 
software. So it's not, it wouldn't be a very good product, right? It would be, I mean, obviously some people would buy it because as I said, they want to have perpetual. I mean, it's so stupid. Why, why do people think <laughs> that like AI, their AI child is going to live longer than they are, right? Because like, what is it like the mean time to failure of a software system is like five years and humans last like 80 years, right? You know, that's just like. It reminds me of everyone being so excited about an Apple car. It's like, have you used an comp- Apple computer or an Apple phone? Do you really want an Apple car? Well, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I'm kind of excited about that. But, uh, yeah. but no, I, I assume that they would get together with some people who knew how to handle those things, you know. But, but anyway, yeah, no, the, the, if you want to do something that's going to last longer than you're going to live, then you should get, you know, like carve some stuff in stone or something. It's not about building AI, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, or, you know, build a big uh, cathedral thing. People seem to care about those. Right. <laughs> I cared. I was really upset. I lost two hours <laughs> mm. Re- reading about that on Twitter. One of the things that uh, that struck me in your write-up for your talk and just now, I don't know that I've ever heard an academic say the word DevOps. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, you know, okay, well, there's two parts of that. First of all, I did spend that five years doing software engineering. Uh-huh. Secondly, you know, part of the reasons I mentioned before that was when I was at MIT, I was a psychologist and I was having a little bit of a struggle. Actually, the very first course I took Every other week was like doing a proof and every other week was doing like pseudocode. And I was getting like C's on the proofs and A's. I was like one of the leading in the class. My first, my, you know, like the, pro, mm-hmm. the MIT doesn't program. They build computers from scratch with like out of Fourier transforms or something, right? So, <laughs> so anyway, but, you know, so, but there were certain struggles I was having. But I just realized that this whole thing about systems engineering of AI was wide open. No one was paying attention to it. Mm-hmm. So I used to say I did, I did systems AI. And, and unfortunately, I guess I wasn't influential enough then. Maybe I should try again now <laughs> to make that a thing. It might be the time. <laughs> yeah, well, seriously. But anyway, it's the systems engineering of AI, and I kind of want people to be able to Google that and find out that systems engineering predates even computers, mm-hmm. you know, because there was like these people claiming there's only four people working on AI safety. It's such rubbish. I mean, everybody, there's AI is pervasive in software now. Everybody's using AI. Everybody's using machine learning, which is, you know, it's a huge change. But that's why there's all these guys from like, you know, Accenture and whatever here, right? You know, everybody is using this stuff now. And everyone who's been developing a system and trying to make sure it stands up is obviously doing all kinds of AI safety. They're doing all kinds of security and they're, and they're trying to figure this stuff out. And so there's thousands of people working in this area. And there's probably hundreds who've published on it, but they just didn't go out and say, oh, yes, I'm saving the world. You know, <laughs> I, 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 there's some real problems because there's certain billionaires that only fund existential threats. And then there's certain academics that want to bring in millions of dollars or pounds or something. And, and so they say, oh, yeah, AI is an existential threat. It's like, you know, that's not helpful. But what is an existential, well, I don't know if it's existential threat, but, but something that really screws up a lot of people's lives and can cause war and things like that is when we lose control of our governments or our corporations. You know, we, we need to figure out how to plug things together. When we change the landscape so much, there are, you know, serious, serious problems, but it's not the, the AI itself. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, I, I actually think that the changes are more about the changes that are making it harder that we need to reinvent governance and that we need to uh, really think about how to plug uh, the the software industry into regulation have more to do with uh, the digital, you know, the fact that we can uh, move perfect replicas of things uh, across the planet in an instant. That's what's really changing things. And it doesn't matter what the, whether the intelligence is something that's coming from a computer or the intelligence is coming from 8 billion connected humans, right? Either way, you've just got a totally new situation. 
And I think that's where a lot of the regulatory challenges are coming from. Mm -hmm. So then when you have a talk called Maintaining Human Control of Artificial Intelligence, is it fair to say it's not really about human control of artificial intelligence (laughs) at all, but rather about human control of human institutions in a world of artificial intelligence? I'm going to finish with that stuff, but I will focus on the DevOps. And, okay. and, and what I'm gonna what I do when I'm talking to people that are mostly in industry is I try to reach out with this idea that look we can do this responsibly we know how and we need to help people I mean the main thing is that we want to help the government enforce so that when we do good practice other people doing bad practice don't suddenly get lots of money and all the all the VC or whatever you know mm-hmm. right so so <laughs> for the vast majority of actors it's in all of our interests to do things that that make the software stable right. So, uh, yeah, so I learned DevOps just by going to these kinds of meetings, right? That's not what we called it in the 80s, but, mm-hmm. <laughs> but that's okay, you know? But, but, the, but the focus on the problem and the solution, it's just unbelievable that people are sitting here. I mean, I've talked to the uh, head of I, – I, I'm trying to decide whether to say this. I will go ahead and say this. <laughs> that there's this thing, the European Union, I have unbelievable respect for them. They are leading in AI in regulation. I'm about to say something bad. You can see it's because I'm going to say all the caveats first there about how great they are, right? So, you know, it's 550 million people. I, I don't want to like run it down. I think it's like one of the, they're leading the free world right now and they're certainly leading in AI uh, ethics and regulation. But they put together this high level experts group and there's like 52 people in it, which it was supposed to be small, but somehow, you know, things happened. Those are super smart people. There's some of my friends and colleagues, you know, that I, I work with and have lots of respect for, you know. But I wound up at this this European Union meeting with the guy that was the chair of that group, and he had never heard about logging, you know, that you know, about 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 revision control. You know, he had no idea how easy it is to demonstrate that you follow good practice on AI. And he had never thought about AI as a product being developed so that you have the same kinds of due diligence responsibilities as any other product. Now, this stuff is already happening in the automotive industry, for example. That's why every time there's an accident or incident happening with a driverless car, it's on the front page. What went wrong? Why it went wrong? You know, what the car perceived? How it was developed? Why that thing happened? Why? Because that's a decently regulated space. And AI doesn't change the fact that automotive is decently regulated. So what's not regulated because it's new and nobody's written the rules is stuff like social media and things like that. But there's nothing about the AI that's being used there that makes it any harder for us to know about what's going on in those, in those companies and whether they were paying attention to the right things than it does in an automotive company. It's just that there hasn't been the history. And so the people coming in, you know, that dropped out of college when they were, you know, in first years or whatever, just didn't realize what they needed to do. And the government hasn't, there, there's, it's possible that governments need some kind of specialists like they have for environmental enforcement, right? You know, so, or, or, or medical that they need to bring together people that can go through and check, you know, the, the admin logs. But, the, you know, the, the we've just gotten incredibly sloppy. And, and you can read uh, one of my colleagues, Seda Gears, has written some amazing thing about the agile turn, uh, that talking about how everybody's throwing their software together so fast, they have no idea where their software libraries are coming from. And of right. course, famously, Frank Pasquale has done the same thing about data, just showing that data is coming from all over, incredibly mm-hmm. unethically, the way it's passing between hands. We need to be able to demonstrate the providence of our the, the libraries we link to and the data that we train our systems from, because there are bad actors out there. 
you know, but it's it's just it is basic DevOps. It's really not it's not it's not rocket science at all. It really is something that it's basic administration, it's basic bookkeeping, and that's all we need. You know, it, it does strike and, me and that, that that so they got super. I gotta say, these guys. It wasn't just. It was like several of the people that were looking at this. That there was again apparently a dumpster fire that was this this high level expert group, <laughs> and they're just like nobody told us this. I'm like I don't know what's going on with the other 52 people, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? But but maybe. I mean, I think this is an important thing. <clears throat> we were talking about our education and our bank on everybody's a little different. One of my colleagues at Princeton, Arvid Narayanan, has this wonderful paper showing, well, it's both terrifying and wonderful, that you can uniquely identify someone if you have like 15 of their t.co links from their browser history. So t.co means it's Twitter. Mm-hmm. And and so you can tell which tweets those links came from because they're compressed, you know, URLs, right? Mm-hmm. And then from seeing what what links you've bothered, bothered to click, you can you can for most like for ninety five percent of people, you can uniquely identify them wow. because we all follow different people on Twitter, mm-hmm. right? And so you can just and that's a member of public, right? So on the one hand, that's terrifying from a privacy perspective, but what's cool about it is it just shows we're all different. We all have different combinations and sets of knowledge. And yeah, so I'm the one person that happens to be in AI ethics because of a paper I wrote when I was a PhD student about people over-identifying with my robot and someone who knows what DevOps <laughs> is, right? You know, like, and so, and right. so that's the, you know, that that's something useful. It does strike me that the the DevOps and, and specifically the the disciplines that we're talking about, understanding logging and versioning and all of these things, they're necessary but not sufficient for providing the kind of control that you're talking about. Right. But what that stuff is for is for providing accountability uh, if the companies want to uh, defend themselves. Uh, if if something goes horribly wrong, then you have to say, uh, who who should pay for it, basically? Are the taxpayers pay, pay, paying for it? Or, you know, are the companies paying for it? And in particular, when you're looking at things where you're saying, you know, did some uh, third country interfere with your election or whatever, you know, there, it really matters that you get to the nuts and bolts about why was things written the way they were written. And so if people don't follow DevOps, right? So first of all, you're right. You need somebody who would go through and read that stuff, right? Secondly, of course, there's still going to be unanticipated things. They will happen, like the, you know, like flash crashes and stuff. Mm-hmm. Like we, we just, we, we get better and better at handling those things, right? So I, you know, people freak out about flash crashes. I think the fact that they're only flash crashes, you know, like, okay, some people lost money. I understand that can devastate some lives, but, but compared to like the, you know, 1929 when people were starving in the streets, which did not happen, at least in America in 2008, incidentally, as bad as 2008 was, it wasn't like what 1929 was, right? So we are getting better and better at recovering from this stuff, and we can't dwell too much on the negative. Mm-hmm. But no, it, it is one part, but it's a core part, and and it's part part of why it's important is about the demystification. Part of it is because then we can make sure that corporations absorb their fair share of the of the um, costs when we're cleaning up from messes, right? And also, mm-hmm. hopefully, by making them do that, we we make it less likely messes happen, mm-hmm. right? But um, but part of it is just to make it clear that you can do that stuff, right? And to and to help people understand, all right, oh yeah, it's it's just it's just it's an ambient technology now. It you know, just like we're gonna look back and before there was newspapers, you know, or whatever, we can say what what changed. You know, this I had no idea about this. The the um polarization increased when when people started getting their their uh newspapers uh delivered. You're talking about economic polarization yeah no no political polarization political polarization everybody thought it would actually help people to get more information 
But unfortunately, what it happened was it, they then started focusing at the national level and use and getting these national identity things and mm-hmm. that. And so it actually, uh, uh, yeah, that was like uh, apparently that was part of what getting mail delivered or something that that they 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 they, they you know oh, it's like. I can't even keep all this stuff in my head. I hear it from other people. <laughs> but it was amazing. And that's only 100 years ago. The The rate at which we're changing society in terms of information is outstanding. Mm-hmm. And so, again, projecting this onto AI and saying that something's going to happen in 60 years or 30 years is not helpful. What we need to do is to see what we've already done um, and to, to recognize how much things are already changing and who's exploiting that, you know? Although one of the scary things, of course, is that every time you do discover something like this, you're also handing the levers to the bad actors, uh, you know, as we saw with the P- that PNAS article that came out. What was it? It was like 2012 or something, the one that showed Which that – was this? The one that you showed that you uh, you need like, I don't know, 80 f- Facebook likes and you could predict who someone was going to vote for better than their partner could, mm. right? You know, that I remember seeing that and I thought, oh <laughs> – but I actually thought a bigger deal was the paper that came out of Microsoft and like NYU about how you could tell how people are going to vote from their connects. Their connect is sitting on top of their television set. And you can also tell when people are going to get divorced. And you can tell, uh, you know, because you can just see whether they're wow. looking at each other, whether they're looking at the TV yeah. when, the, when the commercials come on for the different presidential candidates. Okay. You know, you have all this information there. And, like, no one is talking about this. Right. Right? And then in the end, that was, I thought, I wrote a paper in 2014 that came out in 2015 that predicted that 2016 might be altered by AI. But unfortunately, I said by that Microsoft Connect stuff. Right? So, I was a mm. near miss. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, the uh, you know, obviously, if you have this information, people are going to use it. And, and uh, so, apparently, th- this is another crazy thing. Autocrats usually really do, uh, they're populists, but they usually really do make, make the poor better off. They usually wind up giving their money. So it's possible, and again, we haven't seen this yet, but it may be that Trump is the first one who doesn't do that. And that might be because he has the, the social, the political science that says, oh, you know, uh, decreasing polar, decreasing inequality actually decreases polarization. So you'd probably mm-hmm. be less likely to get reelected if you mm-hmm. actually help the people that voted you, for you. Uh, I'm wondering, do you have kind of three key takeaways for <laughs> that you're planning you're for your talk? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> People usually come up with cool edits, though, in the end, but I realize it's a lot of work. <laughs> so, Joanna, you're giving this talk tomorrow, Human Control of Artificial Intelligence is a Necessity. What are the three key takeaways that you're hoping folks will walk away with? Well, I think I think there's actually only two. I mean okay. – <laughs> No, me. Okay, I'll make it three. One Two's is fine. that it's possible, right? So the most important thing is just realizing that it is an artifact. It's not only something we can do, but it's something we should do. Mm-hmm. Secondly, that all we maintaining responsibility involves is keeping track of what humans do. We don't need to know what every weight in a deep neural network does. We need to know who trained it, when they thought they were done. Um, you know what tests did they use? Why? You know what libraries did they use? Um, and that's about it, right? And and maybe we also want to be able to go back and do some forensics. If it comes up with a, 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 a result we don't like, then we say, okay, let's test to make sure that it wasn't picking up on some uh, defended characteristic, as we say in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um and and you know try changing a few things in the resume and see if see if we can get the the result we expected, right? But those those are things that we can do even if we have a completely black box around the AI from the outside. Just as long as we have government inspectors and go through and check the logs and make sure people follow good practice, right? Mm-hmm. So that's the main, the key thing. 
And then the third thing um, is the, or, or the original second thing, the first one. Was <laughs> anyway, the third thing is that um, it isn't that AI is threatening us. It's that we are uh, finding new ways to express power over each other. And it's really in the interest of everybody, all the big companies, all the little companies, all the medium-sized companies, the ordinary people, to, to get involved and the users. <laughs> I fight mm-hmm. for the users. I'm sorry, I digressed. <laughs> <laughs> right. it's, it's in everybody's interest to, to live in a society where there is a stable and uh, foreseeable uh, economy and politics. So it makes sense to pay our taxes and to participate in governance. Mm-hmm. Awesome. awesome. Well, Joanna, thanks so much for taking the <laughs> Again, time. Again, I made something hard to edit there at the end. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. Well, yeah. Thanks. Thanks for uh, thanks for, for doing this. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It was a ton of fun. Thank okay. you. Yeah. Nice to meet you, too. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, If you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.